point, folks, I would invite you to uh, turn back to Scripture with me and to that passage that we read in 1 Samuel. So it's 1 Samuel chapter 12. 1 Samuel chapter 12. So if you come to this church for the first time, then there's a few things that you can almost uh, guarantee. There's a few things you can probably take for granted when you come here for the first time. Uh, you can probably take for granted that you will meet people from all over the world. We have people here, it's quite a diverse congregation. We've got people from South Korea, from Ghana, uh, people from Peru, and people even from rural backwaters, such as the island of Lewis. So, what else can we take for granted? Okay, if you come to the morning service, you'll pretty much be guaranteed that you'll get a lunch invite, which is a good thing. And what else? Well, I suppose if you come here for the first time, you're probably guaranteed to be a little bit freaked out by some of the ornamentation and the decoration that adorns the walls of the church. But another thing that you can almost guarantee when you come to a church like ours is you will hear an awful lot of talk about the gospel. You will hear the guy pray about the gospel. You will sing hymns and psalms about the gospel. And when you come to churches such as ours, hopefully you'll hear the guy at the front talk quite a bit about the gospel. But what exactly does that mean? What does the gospel mean? You know, is it just, is it just a story where God grants fulfillment to our empty lives? Is that the gospel? Is it more than that? Is it maybe the good news that God loves you? Is that the gospel? Is it perhaps the message just that Jesus forgives sin? Is that the gospel? What is the gospel? Well, let's explore that. And to do so, let's look at a passage of scripture from the Old Testament. 1 Samuel chapter 12. It is entitled Samuel's Farewell Speech. So what's the gospel? Let's get into this. Let's consider our first point this evening. Let's consider the rebellion against God. You got it? The rebellion against God. And for this we need to pay attention to just the words of one verse and it's verse 12 here. So what happens in the lead up to verse 12 is that Samuel speaks to the people and he gives them this long list, a list of examples of the people's wickedness. And that list kind of culminates. It gets to a point, he goes through this list and it gets to an apex in chapter 12, where essentially Samuel says to the people, he says, you've been wicked. 
But God's been faithful. And then verse 12, but when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, was moving against you, you said to me, no, we want a king to rule over us, even though the Lord your God was your king. And what we've got to appreciate there is that these words in verse 12, they hark back to a previous section in 1 Samuel. They hark back to chapter 8. And what happened in chapter 8 was that all the people, they got their elders and they got their leaders to confront Samuel. And they said to Samuel, no longer do we want to be ruled as a theocracy. They say, Samuel, no longer do we want to be a nation that is ruled exclusively by God. They confront Samuel, say these words. They say to him, this is the prophet of the Lord. They say to him, now you appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. You see, what was happening was that this people were scared. They were under imminent threat from this army, Nahash, and the Ammonites. And instead of trusting God, a God who had been so faithful to them, they turn their back on God. And they say, no, we don't want God. We want a man. We want a king to protect us. So do you get it? Do you folks? In this kind of cold and really calculated and a, a conscious way, the people reject God. They rebel against him. And folks, as we think about that, okay, and we think about the people of Israel, are we not struck by a parallel here? Are we not struck by how the situation here for Samuel, how it parallels the back, background to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because what have we got here in 1 Samuel? We've got a people who want power for themselves, don't we? We've got a people who are full of pride. We've got a people who reject God's authority. And we've got a people who seek independence from Almighty God. And friends, that is exactly, that is absolutely exactly the situation of humanity outside of Jesus Christ. Because we all reject God. We have all sought independence from him. Now, I was reading a guy, an author, a few weeks ago, and he was writing about the book of Genesis. And he was writing about the Garden of Eden. He's writing about the fall, how sin entered the world. And he said this about the Garden of Eden. He said, Adam and Eve, they made a conscious decision decision to reject God 
as king. You see it? There is a stark parallel between 1 Samuel 12 and the inherent sin of humanity. Friends, we've rejected God as king. And we stand, if we stand, outside of Jesus Christ tonight, then we stand in sin. We stand in rebellion against God. So that's our first point this evening. Okay, let's move on. Let's consider a second thing. Let's consider the righteousness of the man of God. Right? The righteousness of the man of God. Now, I don't know about you, but the first time that I read that portion of Scripture there, I have to confess that I thought it was a bit odd. You know, those first couple of paragraphs seemed a bit strange. You see, the beginning of the speech that Samuel gives before the people shows him assert his integrity. It shows him sort of stand up in front of everyone and assert his innocence of any crimes, of any dishonesty whatsoever. It's a bit, bit odd. He stands up and says, verse 3, he says, Whom have I cheated? Whom have I oppressed? From whose hand have I accepted a bribe to make me shut my eyes? And all of this is legal language. It's legal terminology. It's the language of the courtroom. You know, he says to the people, testify against me. Testify against me. And the people respond, don't they? You see, they shout back to Samuel. They deem him to be entirely innocent. And they say, verse 4, You have not cheated or oppressed us. You have not taken anything from anyone's hand. And friends, just as in the first point, we thought about an obvious parallel with the good news of the gospel. Here, there's a parallel too, isn't there? You see, just as here in First Samuel, against that backdrop of a rebellious people, you know, against a backdrop of, of sin and wickedness, one man stands entirely innocent. So in the gospel, against this, this backdrop of your sin, against the backdrop of my sin, one man stands different. He stands entirely alone. He stands entirely innocent. And he is, unlike Samuel, completely pure and sinless. Friends, that man is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, about whom Peter says he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. And as we kind of dig a wee bit deeper into this section of Scripture in 1 Samuel, we should, of course, take note of the miracle that happens in this chapter. It happens in verse 16. 
Samuel speaks to the people, says this. He says, now then, stand still and see this great thing the Lord is about to do before your eyes. Is it not a wheat harvest now? I will call upon the Lord to send thunder and rain. Now, I'm from Scotland and there's a few Scottish people uh, here uh, tonight. And uh, when we hear that, we think, rain in harvest time? Well, that's not all that remarkable, is it? In fact, when we hear that, we think rain at any time isn't all that remarkable. But when we dig deeper here, we find that the details of this miracle become a little bit clearer. Because this happens in the dry season. This miracle takes place sort of May, June time. And this was a time where it was unheard of for there to be rain. And this isn't just a little trickle of rain. This is, what does it say? This is thunder and rain. So this isn't a slightly unusual event we're reading about in 1 Samuel 12. This is, as one commentator says, he says, this is a unique occurrence. It is a unique occurrence. And in this center point of the chapter, this is the, 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 the key, this is the, the apex of the chapter here. In this, we see a parallel or a, or a shadow of another miracle, don't we? Because years later, years after this event, there was going to be another unique occurrence, wasn't there? There was going to be another unique occurrence when God would blacken the skies. Another unique occurrence where the righteous man of God would cry out to God. Another unique occurrence that would lead to the whole community bowing before God in repentance. In this thunder and rain, we see a shadow of the center point of the gospel with the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. You see, verse 16 says that God was going to do a great thing. A great thing before the people. Well, friends, the greatest thing, the absolute greatest thing has been done for us. You see, God didn't leave us in first point there. He didn't leave us in our state of rebellion, did he? No, he didn't. He intervened and he sent his son. His son lived that righteous life, didn't he? He died for sin. And he is risen again. Is that not a miracle? Is that not a unique occurrence? The righteousness of the man of God. Okay, by this stage, you're working out what we're doing here with the alliteration, aren't you? We've had rebellion and we have had the righteousness of 
the, the man of God. So third point is the repentance of the people of God. You got that third point, the repentance of the people of God. So the people, the people of Israel, they witness this. They witness the miracle. They witness the thunder and rain. What do they do? How do they respond to this act of God? Well, we read that they kind of gasp in awe and amazement. And then they start begging. They plead with God. They plead with Samuel. They say, verse 19, Pray to the Lord your God for us, your servants, so that we will not die. For we have added to all our other sins this evil of asking for a king. So do you get it? Do you you see what they do? They are confronted with the righteousness, the, the, the innocence of this man of God. They are confronted with the power of this unique occurrence. And because of what they are confronted with, they fall to their knees in repentance before God. And surely that, for us tonight, is an illustration of what every one of us here must do to have our sins forgiven. You see, the people here, do you remember Ezra chapter 10? We looked at that two weeks ago, the first part. Do you remember the attitude that that community had when they were repenting? It wasn't kind of insincere, was it? I mean, these people were contrite. These people were oh so sincere in their repentance. And that's the same as in 1 Samuel. You see, look at the language that they use. They, re- they call their sin. They call the rebellion, verse 19, an evil, evil thing. And then they call themselves, they refer to themselves humbly, they call themselves your servants. And it's the first time that they use that expression. And then they say, verse 18, it says that they greatly feared the Lord. You see, this is not about word play. This is not an insincere heart. These people were troubled by their sin. They could see that they needed God. That they needed forgiveness, so they bowed before him. Now, have you done that? Have you? I know Because you've told me, I know that there's people in this room that have not done this. That you have not bowed before God and asked him to deal with your sin, to take away your sin. Friends, you you must. That the wonder of the gospel, the great news of the gospel is that tonight, you have got that opportunity again. You've got it. It is here tonight. So bow before Jesus. Don't let this carry on. You've let it carry on for too long now. You're confronted with Jesus Christ. Bow before the throne of grace 
in sincere, sincere repentance. Okay, folks, let's conclude tonight just thinking of a fourth thing here. We've seen rebellion, haven't we? Our rebellious hearts. We've seen the righteous man of God. We've seen the reaction that we must have, the repentance before God. And end. What is the gospel? Will we end the fourth point? The redemption of the people of God. The redemption of the people of God. I don't know about you, but I love the way that this chapter ends. It is inspiring. It is uplifting. It is a stirring finale. Because we learn here the results of the gospel. We learn the results of transformation in Jesus Christ. We learn the future that awaits you if you are in Christ. Your future. You see, the, the chapter, it culminates in words of reassurance to the people of Israel. You know, they've repented of their sin. So Samuel tells them that if they persevere, that if they are obedient and faithful, that they will be greatly blessed, that they will be greatly favoured. And for those of us tonight, for those here who are Christians, for those of us who have seen the weight of our sin and have bowed before God and asked him for forgiveness, then surely these words that we read in this chapter are simply breathtaking. You see, because of the gospel, these words we read in chapter 12, they are equally applicable to us. That we can take these promises here, that we can take these assurances and know that they are relevant to us. Because of Jesus and what he has done, we too are promised. Verse 22, the Lord will not reject his people. The Lord will not reject his people. We're told, verse 25, that we will never be swept away. You see, folks, the gospel is more than the things we said at the start. The gospel is more than just a sort of light-hearted message that God loves you. The gospel is much, much more than just God is going to fulfill the emptiness in your life. The gospel is a message of grace. That message of undeserved favor is a message that tells us that we deserve hell because of our sin. We all deserve eternal 
punishment, but that through Christ, forgiveness can be ours. That through Jesus Christ and his sacrifice, the Lord will not reject his people. What a finale to the chapter. But what a finale to the gospel message. But see, as we end tonight, let me just say a word of application to you if you are a believer. Let me just say a word about the gospel and purpose. The gospel and purpose. You see, the gospel's great. We've seen that. But what does it mean for our purpose, the purpose of our life? What does the gospel mean for the way that we are going to lead our lives? Well, if you're a Christian tonight, then the gospel should mean everything for how you lead your life. You see, just consider Samuel. Just consider the innocence. Consider the faithfulness of Samuel and consider how it impacted the people around him. You see, Samuel was used by God, wasn't he? He was used by God to do wonderful things throughout his life. Why? Because he was blameless, he was upright, he was without reproach. Now let me ask you, do you think the same could be said of you? Are you blameless, upright, without reproach? Are you? Do you demonstrate a commitment to the gospel in the way that you deal with your friends? Do you demonstrate a commitment to the gospel in the way that you deal with your kids? in the way that you deal with your spouse, in the way that you deal with your work colleagues? Is your integrity, is your faith, is it obvious to the people in your life, is it? So the gospel and your purpose. But what about the gospel and God's purpose? See, the question is surely, when we consider the gospel, the question is surely, why? You know, why does God bother with this? I mean, we've been terrible to God. Consider what the people of God did here. They rejected him. We don't want God. And we've done the same thing. We've turned away from God. So why did he bother with this beautiful plan of salvation? Why did he bother with the gospel at such a great cost to himself? Well, the answer is here. The answer is in this chapter of Scripture. Verse 22 says, For the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people. For the sake of his great name. Friends, that's it. That is the bottom line. That's what it all boils down to. That is the hinge of Scripture. That is what the whole gospel is about. And it is what your entire life must be about. The glory, the sake 
of God's great name. Now, is it? Is God your all? Is God your passion? Is Jesus Christ your zeal? Is he your redeemer? Is Christ your Lord? Is Christ your saviour? Ask yourself tonight, is Christ your king? Is he? Well, if he's not, friend, I urge you, consider the gospel. Consider it. And please come quickly and swiftly and bow before the maker of heaven and earth. What is the gospel? It is good news, is it not? Let's pray.